Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. La cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente. Una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. This podcast details true crime cases. It contains adult themes and may contain descriptions of violence. It is not intended for children. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of Once Upon a Crime. First of all, what did you think of the new music? I'm so thrilled to have had our original score updated and made so much more awesome by Aaron Michael Goldberg. You can find a link to more of his music in the show notes. Secondly, this episode's going to be a little different. But don't worry, Once Upon a Crime will still be the same podcast you're used to going forward. But since I'm kicking off 2020 with just one episode in January, I've decided to do something I planned for a long time, and that is to do a very deep and very detailed dive into a well-known serial killer, Eileen Wernos. This episode will probably be longer than most. I've spent a big portion of my time off reading and researching all I can about Ms. Wernos, and I've got a lot to share with you. I'll be giving you all the details, but I'll also be speaking more off the cuff than usual so that I can also provide some analysis of this infamous serial killer, her crimes, and her motivations. I hope you'll enjoy it. So, let's get started with this special episode that I'm calling Once Upon a Crime, Behind the Crime, Eileen Wernos. Are you ready? Let's party. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. When something happens to your car, you might say, 
But what you really need to say is something that can actually help. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. And just like that, State Farm is there to help you file your claim right on the State Farm mobile app. So, just remember, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. State Farm, Bloomington, Illinois. Eileen Wernos has been called the first American female serial killer. While that's not completely accurate, there is a reason why she's called this, and we'll get into that a little bit later. To summarize, Eileen Wernos was tried and convicted of the murders of seven men between the years of 1989 and 1990. She ultimately was convicted and given the death penalty and was executed in 2002. There is a lot that's been written and documented about Eileen Wernos, and I've gone through a lot of the details to try to give you the very best information that I can find on this infamous serial killer. But first of all, I think we should begin at the beginning with the early life of Eileen Carol Wernos. Eileen Wernos was born February 29, 1956, making her a leap year baby. She was raised in Troy, Michigan by Larry and Britta Wernos. Now, if you've ever seen anything written about Larry, his name is spelled L-A-U-R-I. It looks like Lori, but the accounts that I found said everybody pronounced it Larry. Eileen, as you might know, is also spelled a little bit differently. It's A-I-L-E-E-N, when usually we spell it with an E. Besides Eileen, Larry and Britta's family was comprised of a boy named Keith, who was only 11 months older than Eileen, as well as Diane, their older daughter, Barry, who was their older son, 12 years older than Eileen, and Lori, who was two years older than Eileen. Eileen idealized her grandmother, Britta. Britta's name was actually Eileen Britta, so Eileen was named after her grandmother. Britta, she said, painted, she wrote poetry. She was a loving grandmother who spent time with her children. But Eileen would give an idealized version of Britta because there was some secrets in this family, and you'll see going forward that there was quite a few secrets in this family. Britta was also frail health-wise, and she was also a secret alcoholic. The tales of Eileen's childhood are very interesting because it was pretty chaotic. One of her first memories is of being burned at age nine while playing with fire. She was scarred on her face and on her neck. And while she was taken to the emergency room and she had some burns, they weren't deep and she was a little swollen, but she would exaggerate this later on and talk about this terrible scarring that she had on her face and how afterwards the kids in her class and everyone around her made fun of her, bullied her, and basically ostracized her. But the ostracism that Eileen would face, we would find, has a lot to do with her behavior. By the age of 11, she was labeled as incorrigible. She had a very quick and very hot temper. She would sneak out of the house many times and go who knows where. She would start hanging out with older kids when she was very, very young at the age of seven or eight years old and hang out in makeshift forts that were put together by the kids and inside the woods between Troy, where she lived, and Rochester, Michigan. There are some positives about Eileen that were also reported that she was artistically talented and she could sing really, really well. Eileen always liked to have attention and she wanted to be a movie star. Her goal was to become famous 
and be a Hollywood star. I alluded earlier to some secrets in this family. One of these secrets, she and her brother Keith would find out at the age of 11 that they were adopted. They were adopted by Larry and Britta, who were not their mother and father, but were actually their grandparents. Their mother was Diane, their oldest child. They believed that Diane, of course, was their older sister all of their lives. Diane didn't live with them in the home. She was pretty much gone by the time they were toddlers. Later on, the children's father would be identified as a man named Leo Pittman. While Eileen was growing up in her family, neither Diane nor Leo was ever mentioned by their family. Diane would send gifts for her children, but their grandparents would get rid of them. Diane would later remarry and have two more children named Rusty and Kathy. Eileen never met her father. He was also abandoned and raised by his grandparents. And he also had discipline problems while young. Leo was also a bedwetter until he was in his teens. He also abused his grandmother, but she indulged him. He was the favorite child. He never talked about his real parents. Leo would meet Diane Wernos. She was a neighbor. One thing that Leo and Diane had in common is that they were both very secretive. Her entire family was this way. Neighbors would say that the Wernos family was always in their house. They kept their drapes drawn, and nobody really knew what went on inside there. And for good reason. I'll get to that in a little bit. Obviously, bad things were happening in there because Diane would run away repeatedly, and supposedly she was a pretty good girl and a good student. Once she ran away and hid in a neighbor's attic for two days to hide from her parents, but she would never explain exactly why she was hiding from her parents. Diane met Leo, and she started a secret relationship with him and ended up eloping and marrying him. This was at the time she was only 14 years old, and he was just 17 in 1954. Leo's grandmother signed permission for these underage children to be married. Their first child, Keith, was born on March 14, 1955. Many people thought that Diane was pregnant when she eloped, but she wasn't. She actually became pregnant after the marriage. Leo was very jealous and possessive, and Diane was not allowed to leave the house. She was not allowed to wear makeup or take phone calls. Leo drank, and when he did, he would become mean and abusive to Diane. In the summer of 1955, when Keith was just a few months old, Diane got pregnant with Eileen. Around the same time, Leo was arrested for car theft, and at that time, he was given the option by the judge to either join the army or go to jail. He enlisted into the service and was away until October 1957. During this time, Diane filed for divorce. She was only 16. The divorce was granted in November 1955. Eileen was born just three months later. Diane did her best to raise kids as a single mother, and she did so for a year. She tried for a while living with her parents, but that didn't work out. For obvious reasons, she always had problems with her parents. Her and her parents didn't get along for quite a long time, and it was even worse after Diane left to get married. But Diane was overwhelmed raising two infants on her own. She would use babysitters, and one day she left the kids with the babysitter to go to dinner and never returned. At this time, Eileen was between six and nine months old. Later, it was discovered that she had went to Texas. Why she went there, again, is unknown. Some people say it was she left with a man. Some people say that she had gone with the promise of a job. But nobody ever knew for sure, and she never clarified it. The kids were left with Diane's best friend, Marge, who had been babysitting for her. 
Marge waited for a week before telling Diane's parents, hoping that she would return. When she didn't, she was desperate. She couldn't raise these kids, of course. She was also, you know, a young teenager herself. So the kids' grandparents took them in. They finally heard from Diane, and they worked out an agreement with her. She signed papers for her parents to adopt Keith and Eileen legally. Diane did try to return home. She came back to Troy briefly at the age of 18. Diane would later say that her mother, Britta, was jealous of Diane's attention towards her own kids. Later on, it was also discovered that Britta told Larry that Diane was beating the kids when he wasn't around. Diane and her father already had a strained relationship, and this just basically fractured it completely. Diane would also later say that Britta became jealous of Diane when she hit puberty. Some people believe that perhaps she was jealous of Larry's attention towards his daughter. Diane always would deny that her father sexually abused her, but she admitted to a reporter in 1991 that there might have been some, quote, accidental touching, unquote. And there was also a kissing incident when she was about 14 years old. Diane said that she was about 14 years old, and her father, in front of her mother, said, come here and give your dad a kiss. He pulled her towards him and gave her a big kiss, which she later said, she realized was the way a man would kiss a woman, and she thought it was disgusting. And she couldn't understand why he would have done that in front of her mother. But at that point, she realized that her mother would get angry with her by the attention that her father was giving her and thought that maybe her dad was trying to make her mother jealous. So she didn't stay in Troy very long. Diane returned to Texas permanently when Eileen was about two years old. This time, she was actually raising them in an apartment of her own and once again, she'd leave the kids with a babysitter when she took off and didn't return. Eileen would later exaggerate in stories and say that she'd been abandoned and found covered with flies, which the babysitter and the other people who were witnesses at the time said was not true. Diane wouldn't return to Troy for 13 years, and that would be after her mother's death. Leo Pittman, Eileen's father, was arrested in 1958 for breaking and entering and given probation. In 1959, he was sentenced to six years in federal prison for car theft and transporting stolen cars over state lines. He served just three years before being paroled. In the early 1960s, he was investigated for a child rape and murder that occurred in 1955, which would have been just before Keith was born. Then in 1962, he was arrested for the rape of a seven-year-old girl. He would confess to this assault. After his arrest, he told cellmates he would fake mental illness to be sent to a mental hospital instead of prison. He was also suspected of molesting two 10-year-old girls in June 1962. In March of 1963, investigation into the child murder charge began. The judge ruled Leo Pittman mentally unfit for trial, and he was labeled as schizophrenic, and sent to the state mental hospital for evaluation. He would escape from that hospital less than two weeks later. Captured in August, he was charged with the crime against the 10-year-old and pled not guilty. He was found not guilty by reason of insanity and sent to a state mental facility and then released in February of 1965. He was finally charged with the assault of the 7-year-old in January of 1966. Again, he went with the insanity defense. He was found guilty and sentenced to life in prison at that time. In January 1969, three years later, he was found hanging in his prison cell at the age of 33. He died a few days later. Let's get back to Eileen. 
Eileen and her brother were obviously very unhappy at home. They were repeated runaways. They would run away for the night. They would run away for the day. They would run away for the weekend and hang out in the woods, hang out with friends, and just be gone. And then they'd be found, dragged back home, and start all over again. Eileen would later talk about abuse at home. Her, who she still called father, Larry, would beat them with the belt. He was verbally abusive. He would say that they should have never been born. These were the things she remembered about being raised by her grandfather. Her grandmother, she would still say, was loving and caring, and it was all her grandfather who was the abuser. But we'll find out differently about that a little later. Eileen was definitely starved for affection from the time she was very, very young. With a abusive grandfather and an alcoholic grandmother, and abandoned by her mother, never knowing her father, she was always looking for ways to gain attention and to get love from others. But her behavior did the opposite. She would find a friend and then she would do things to push that friend away. She had a very, very short temper. She would always be perceiving that people were making fun of her and sometimes they were. She was bullied. She had learning disabilities. She was hard of hearing. There was a lot of things that were detriments to her, and kids pick up on these things and tend to be cruel about them. So she would respond by becoming angry and then just being verbally abusive herself, wanting to fight. So she had a hard time making and keeping friends. By the time she was 10, 11 years old, she found that one way that she could get attention was from boys. She was a pretty little girl. She was blonde. She was small. She was very cute. And she knew it, and she used her looks to get attention. But the boys, again, still kind of saw Eileen as a misfit and kind of a weirdo, and something was wrong with her family. So they didn't have much respect for her, and they weren't going to to give her attention like, I want you to be my girlfriend. But they were willing to use her, and she was willing to let them for attention. It all became a very sad situation. By the time she was 11, she started trading sexual favors with boys in exchange for cigarettes, for money, and later for beer and drugs. She was given a very cruel nickname by the boys in the neighborhood. They would call her Cigarette Pig. She started getting more involved in drugs, taking mescaline, smoking marijuana. She started dropping acid and pills by the time she was in her early teens. She had always smoked cigarettes beginning at the age of 10. Also in her early teens, she began shoplifting and stealing. She never seemed to really want things for herself. She was not a materialistic person, but she would use them to, again, make friends. You'd share things with the other kids, with other girls, with other people in school. And that was her way of, again, buying friendships. Some of the boys later on would talk about Eileen and what they knew about her growing up with her in Tri-Michigan. A friend of Keith's named Jerry Moss knew her when she was 12 and he was 14, and this would be the summer of 1968. He said at that time she was already having sex with boys and he was one of them. Later reports would say that she had her first sexual encounter at the age of 11, and with who is still debated. We'll talk about that too. Another boy named Mark Fern was a year younger and another friend of Keith's and said he lost his virginity to Eileen when he was 10 or 11. So she would have been 11 or 12. 
He said he saw her with another boy named Dean even earlier than this. So all this to say that she started having sex, according to witness accounts, pretty early in her prepubescent ages. Now, Mark also says that Eileen told him she'd had sex with her father, Larry. This was the first report of this, but it wouldn't be the last. She also told Gary, another boy, that she'd first had sex at age 11 with her own brother, Keith. There was some reports that there was some sexual acting out going on between them, and so this may or may not be true. We don't know this for a fact, only from later reports. Lori, their sister, would deny that this was true. She said that Eileen and Keith never got along. They fought all the time, and she can't even imagine this happening. But there's something odd here in Eileen's family, that if you go through their history, I'll give you a recommendation. I got a lot of detailed information from certain places. One of them was a very detailed book that you might have heard of called Lethal Intent, written by Sue Russell. And the book was written pretty early on, so it doesn't go all the way through the end of the story, but it gives a lot of the background and also of the crimes. She got quite a few interviews with people that Eileen grew up with. Kind of this picture of her family came out with putting all of these um, stories together of the people that lived in Troy, Michigan, around the family. What you have to remember is that Larry and Britta's child, Barry, was a lot older than, of course, Keith and Eileen. Diane was the oldest. Barry was the second. And then Diane gets pregnant and the two children, of course, much younger. Time, I believe, the, the children were toddlers that Barry was already out of the house. So Barry was only there for the first few years of their lives. I'm pretty sure he was not living in the home anymore by the time that Eileen was a teenager. So Barry and Lori, who were the older of the children, have a completely different account of the way they grew up. They both said that their father, Larry, was a strict disciplinarian. They did say that he had a lot of rules and things, but they both said that he was not abusive. They make it seem like it was pretty much a normal standard house, that there wasn't really anything out of the ordinary going on at all. Especially Barry would basically say that Eileen was just a problem child. And if she got disciplined more, that's probably why. But both Keith and Eileen told their friends that Larry hit them on their bare butts with a belt, that he sometimes hit them with the belt buckle. Lori and Barry would both say that these were just spankings. But there's a lot of things that I think it seems that Barry and Lori either didn't see or basically excused or just kind of put blinders on to. Lori also said she didn't know anything about Eileen being out in the woods with boys or having sex or any of those things going on. But she also said she didn't know anything about her mother's alcoholism until after she died. Larry was also a very heavy drinker, and she doesn't make much mention of that either. We do know that Britta did take the children to church. She was religious. She read the Bible. But there was no physical affection in the home. Everyone said, we never saw Larry and Britta touch. We never saw them touch the children. We never saw them give kind words or encouragement or any of that kind of things to the children. It was all very harsh. It was all very discipline-oriented. 
But one of the things that Eileen and Keith would both say is that they were made to kiss their parents goodnight every single night. They both hated being forced to do this because it felt so unnatural to them. Keith would also say that he hated his parents. And of course, Larry and Britta is, he, is who he's talking about as his parents. Both Keith and Eileen would report being locked in the room for long periods of time as discipline. As they got older, Keith and Eileen kept running away. Eileen started hitchhiking very often to get to one place or another. Eventually, Larry would report this to the police. Eileen eventually would be picked up and sent to juvenile hall. But at this point, Eileen basically was just going to do what she wanted to do. She was not going to stay home. She was going to rebel. She just was not happy there. And she found a way to slip out of the house every time. One of the things that she did was she started hanging out with another couple from the neighborhood. These neighbors, the Podlacks, um, were kind of a hippie. I don't know if you call them a hippie or just a, a different um, sensibility of couple. They were older. Um, but they would allow the kids in the neighborhood to come to their house and hang out and drink. Dixie, the wife, was an ex-burlesque dancer, and she was also an alcoholic. She was in her 50s at this time. Eileen saw her as a role model. She thought she was pretty cool. Dixie liked to have the kids around because she liked to have somebody to drink with and sometimes somebody to bring alcohol for her. She'd give them money, they'd bring the alcohol, and they would drink together. Eileen would also say later that she had sex with Mr. Podlack, who was also a much older man. By the mid-teens, Eileen was heavily involved with alcohol, drugs, and prostitution. She used the money that she earned to try and buy friends, like I said before, and she would also throw parties by buying alcohol. One of the ways that she would get money to buy these friends and do these parties was by burglarizing homes and shoplifting. Keith reportedly also sold drugs. But while Eileen liked to start a party and get alcohol and, and share with her friends, when she got drunk, she would become very belligerent. She would start fights. She often got thrown out of parties and, again, was shunned by other teens. Eileen did not do well in school, as you can imagine. There was a couple of reasons for this. In the 1970s, there was a doctor's report that said she had poor hearing and a slight vision impairment. Eileen would refuse to wear glasses. She never did her whole life, even though she needed them. The report also stated, there are many indications that Eileen has a hearing problem. However, her mother is very defensive about this. This would be Britta. And says Eileen simply does not pay attention. She refuses to permit a professional evaluation. So she obviously had hearing problems and was not helped for this as well. The report also said that she, quote, loses interest quickly and can easily become a leader in discipline problems, unquote. She scored low on verbal IQ tests. It was an 80. And her average IQ was recorded at 106. The quote also stated, motivation for assimilation of facts, numerical concepts, word knowledge, and social awareness are far below average. It also stated that Eileen was not, quote, comfortable in the female role, unquote. Finally, the report warned, it is vital for this girl's welfare that she receive counseling immediately. This never happened. She never received counseling. The family simply just did not follow through with this. At 14, she was prescribed a mild tranquilizer to help stabilize her moods and improve her behavior. Also at the age of 14, she became pregnant. The story was, according to Eileen, she had been attacked and raped while being held at gunpoint and or knife point for six hours. 
She said her rapist was going to kill her, but she begged him and he let her go. Curiously, she also said that her rapist was a, quote, Elvis lookalike, unquote. Her grandparents didn't believe her, and she would name different men as the father during her pregnancy. Alternately, she said the father was her brother Keith, her grandfather Larry, a boy named Dean, and Mr. Podlack. You can imagine having a, a teenage girl pregnant in her home made Britta very embarrassed, as she considered herself a Christian and a very straight-laced person. Larry, for his response, was furious. He wanted Eileen gone. At this point, Larry was unemployed, and he qualified for aid for dependent families, which paid for the birth of the baby. Eileen was then sent to an Enwood mother's home in Detroit. She had a baby boy born on March 24, 1971, who was immediately put up for adoption. Eileen wanted to hold her son and spend time with him, but it wasn't allowed. Eileen then returned home and went back to high school, but dropped out after just a few months. The pregnancy, like so many things in this family, was never discussed. Even close family members, like her aunt, didn't know about it until many years later. After she dropped out of school, she ended up leaving home pretty much for good. She was sleeping outside in the woods or couch surfing with a friend here and there once in a while or different families. She began hitchhiking and doing sex work to earn a living. Again, she continued to buy companions with alcohol and drugs purchased with the money she earned from sex work. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about how that worked out, but it was a little bit different than you might think in the way that she went about it. The hitchhiking and the sex work kind of went hand in hand. We'll talk about that a little bit. Around the same time that Eileen left home for good, her grandmother, Britta, died of cirrhosis of the liver. Eileen did show up to the funeral when she was drunk and belligerent. Eileen's sister, Lori, would learn from autopsy report that her mother died covered in bruises and smelling like alcohol. Larry repeatedly told people after she died that he, quote, did not kill his wife, unquote. No one had accused him of killing his wife. So this was very um, interesting. And something later on people wondered about. Larry died five years after his wife did. Before we go on into Eileen's adult life, I want to talk a little bit about Eileen's mental state. Like I had said earlier, she lost her temper easily since she was a small child. She could not fit in with other children. She was teased and bullied, and this caused her to become angry, which, of course, made her lose her temper. Her sister Lori said that sometimes she would try and be nice and friendly with the other kids and other people in the neighborhood, but it always seemed forced to her. Lori thought it never seemed natural for Eileen to just be easygoing and have a relationship with somebody. Many people report that Eileen would become out of control when angry or frustrated. When she drank alcohol, it made it much, much worse. She would become very triggered and furious if anyone ever labeled her as crazy. Lori now was a young adult. She got married and tried to help Eileen by taking her in. But Eileen, as we'll see, was almost impossible to live with. She wouldn't hold a job. She wouldn't pick up after herself, and she would always end up stealing from friends and family. She also would show a violent temper. Once she grew enraged at her sister and threatened to kill her with a metal skewer. Lori said she never felt completely safe with her afterwards. She had also threatened Keith with a knife, and they often fought physically with each other. Once, when she was at Barry's home, she threatened his wife, saying she'd, quote, kill her if she didn't shut up, unquote. 
Lori, sensing there was something wrong with Eileen, thought about having her committed to a mental hospital. But she was afraid of her, and she was afraid of her reaction if she tried to do this. Neighbors would also describe Eileen as, quote, always pissed off at everyone, unquote. So at this point, Eileen had lost her mother. She had lost her grandmother. And now her brother, Keith, discovered that he had cancer in 1974. He was only 20 years old. His cancer was very aggressive. It spread from his throat to his brain, lungs, and bones. Larry, now a widower, was living with Barry in his basement at his home. He was very depressed. On March 12, 1976, he killed himself by carbon monoxide poisoning in the garage. Neither Keith nor Eileen would attend the funeral. Keith, because he was so ill with cancer at this point. So it was another loss in Eileen's life. So maybe this was a response to it, but here's the next strange chapter in Eileen Wernos' life. Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20, vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. In 1976, 20-year-old Eileen married 69-year-old Louis Gratz Bell. He met her when she was hitchhiking. They got married in Georgia. It was even announced in society pages in Florida. Louis Fell was wealthy. He had a beach condo. He was the president of a yacht club. He drove a Cadillac. And by all accounts, he spoiled his much younger bride with things, with a big diamond ring, nice clothes. And she got to drive around in his Cadillac. But after one month of marriage, Mr. Fell left Eileen and hightailed it back to Florida. He also filed a restraining order against his bride. In this restraining order, he claimed that she had beaten him with his walking cane. She, in turn, would accuse him of beating her, but told the truth of her abuse towards him to her sister Lori and her mother Diane. She said she'd started going on spending sprees, and then he decided that she was spending too much. He put her on a small allowance instead. At this point, she got very angry and she struck him. So she returns to Michigan and she started hanging out in bars now. But this was not a good place for her, of course, because alcohol. She would get into bar fights and she was arrested for assault and battery. And she had also had earlier warrants. She quickly made bail 
and got out of jail. And then just a few days later, her brother Keith died at the age of 21. Just two days after that, her divorce from Louis Fell was granted. So there was a, a lot of upheaval, a lot of loss in Eileen's young adult life. When Keith died, his life insurance policy left $10,000 for each of his siblings. Eileen got her money and quickly blew through it. She bought a car she couldn't afford. It was repossessed soon. She bought a stereo and other material items, although she was still homeless, and the money was gone in three months. When somebody mentioned how she'd gone through the money, she just retorted that she didn't want that money anyway. It was, quote, death money, unquote. At this time also, she began talking a lot about religion, and you will see this throughout her life, that this was kind of a back and forth where, on the one hand, she was living a rough life. She was living kind of on the edge of the law, but she also spoke as if she was very religious. This may have come from her grandmother, Britta. But at the same time, she used this knowledge of the Bible and the knowledge of Christianity and how Christian people talk to con people. She conned a minister who basically she presented herself as just being down on her luck and she needed some in a place to stay and a family and godly people to be around her. So he took her into his home with his family and she rewarded him by robbing him and his family before taking off again. Then she would brag about it. She would also start bragging to her sister that she was getting paid well for having sex. She told her sister that truckers paid her very well for sex. She finally decided to leave Michigan. She said it was too cold. And remember, she was mostly out on the streets. She told her sister she was going to Florida where it was warm, and she hitchhiked there. But on her way, she also saw her mother, Diane. She made her way to Texas, and Diane would later recall this terrible visit from her daughter, saying that when she got there, she was on drugs, that Eileen stayed for two weeks, and that every day she was either drunk and or high. Diane said she was afraid of Eileen. She felt that her parents had raised Eileen to hate her, and that Eileen was always talking about violence, talking about who she was angry with, talking about beating people, talking about killing people all the time, and she just didn't feel safe around her. Eileen also at this time spent time living in Colorado. She would later say that she liked hanging out on biker bars, that she hung out with bikers, that these were a rough crowd, that these were criminals and killers, and she loved being around this. In May of 1974, she was arrested under the name Sandra B. Kretsch. This arrest was for disorderly conduct, and the ID that she used was from a license stolen from an abandoned VW she had slept in for a while. She spent 10 days in jail for this offense. Other things on her record from around this time were DUIs, weapons offenses, driving without a driver's license. There was quite a few offenses on her record. In 1981, she's 25 years old at this time, she meets a 52-year-old auto worker, Jay Watts. She was hanging out at a bar in Daytona Beach. She asked for a few bucks from him and then a place to crash. He agreed. He wasn't that interested in her, he said, but he thought she was okay. They ended up staying together for about two months. In May of 81, she had a fight with her boyfriend, Jay, and ended up holding up a supermarket in Edgewater, Florida. This was an armed robbery and she pled guilty. When she was arrested, it was found that there was a warrant for her arrest from Colorado for grand larceny. In 1979, she had stolen a diamond ring from a woman she befriended who'd given her a place to stay. This was her pattern. One thing I want to call your attention here is 
this boyfriend she was with was double her age. And we'll see this as a pattern, as many of the men that she was with, like her 69-year-old husband, are much older than her. And people would allude to this later on, saying, is this because the first relationship he had was with her grandfather? Is, is there something in her past history that makes her want to repeat this pattern of getting love and attention from older men? Just keep that in mind. After the arrest for the armed robbery, a psych evaluation was taken. The report labeled her as unstable but not delusional. She was sentenced to three years in a Florida prison. Jay visited regularly, and she wrote to him of hating being housed with lesbians. During her time incarcerated, she began immersing herself in the Bible, and all of her communication with Jay is that she was desperate to get back. She was desperate to get out of jail to be back with Jay. After she had spent already a year in prison, Jay began to visit her less. To retaliate, and also because she was lonely, Eileen put an ad in a personal section of a biker magazine. She tells Jay that she has over 100 men writing to her. Eileen was released from prison after 18 months in August of 1983. After she was released, she hitched to Washington, D.C. to meet a man that she'd been corresponding with from that personals ad. He was a 47-year-old engineer. She told him that she was a country and western singer. Of course, he knew that she had been incarcerated, but when she phoned him unexpectedly and told him she was in D.C., it was a surprise. He was excited to go see her. He picked her up, and the first red flag is when he picked her up. She was very, very drunk, he said. She also at that time told him that she was gay and that there would be no touching. At this point, she was 27 years old, but he would say that she looked much older. Well, prison will age you. She stuck around with this man for three months. She hitched twice alone to Florida, but kept coming back. He really kind of didn't know what to do with her. Here's this young girl. The guy had a heart. He thought, well, you know, I'm not really that interested in her as a girlfriend, but obviously she needs some help. She doesn't seem to have anybody. He would pay her to do some yard work and some odd jobs. She started telling him all kinds of stories. It's weird because there's times in her life where it seems like she's starting to break with reality somewhat, but then at other times she seems very lucid. She told him stories about seeing aliens, and she talked a lot about religion. And then she would talk a lot about her beloved grandmother, Britta, who she basically characterized as a saint. Her behavior was very erratic during this time and became even more so when drinking, like we've said before, that's kind of uh, a pattern. Her drinking and pill popping, all of this became worse during this time. This man named Ed, he wanted out. So on one day, she was drinking a lot and took a lot of pills, and she passed out cold. He couldn't wake her up. from He didn't know exactly what she had taken. He called the paramedics. At this point, she was admitted to the hospital and was um, sent to a psychiatric unit. So this was kind of his out. He figured, you know, she's going to get some help. She's going to get hospitalized. She obviously needs help, Things, something that I can't do for her, and it'll get me kind of out from under like, I guess he felt a little bit responsible for her. She became very religious at this time, at least spoke a lot about religion. And he said she sat around a lot and watched a lot of TV. And a lot of what she watched was Christian television. She became a big fan of television evangelist Jim Baker. And after she left the hospital, she traveled to Jim Baker's Heritage USA Religious Center. She said she wanted to go there to work with um, the ministry and to, quote, save the world, unquote. She only stayed there for about two weeks before she uh, hitched a ride back to Florida. She had said when she was in prison, 
she had told her boyfriend that she couldn't stand being around lesbians. And now, in 1984, she reports to her family that she's gay. She has a girlfriend named Tony, and together they've started a pressure-cleaning business. She tells them that her and Tony are in love. Eileen's family is not accepting. At least Lori, her sister, is not. She doesn't really know what to say. She said she was embarrassed. When Eileen sent her a picture of Tony, it was a picture of a short, heavyset woman with short, dark hair. Here's the thing, though. I haven't found a lot of information about Tony. Eileen does talk about Tony other times in her life, that this is where she discovered that she was a lesbian and Tony was her first love. But there's not a lot of information about her, so I'm thinking it probably didn't last very long. Eileen again is arrested for passing bad checks. This time it was in Key West, and she was charged with two counts of forgery. She didn't show up for her sentencing hearing, so of course there was a warrant put out for her arrest. She was a little bit going off the rails at this point again. She called her sister Lori, started preaching and talking about violence. She started telling her sister that she was being abused, she was being raped while she was out on the road, that how she wanted to kill her abusers, how she was going to arm herself. Lori was very concerned wanted her to get off the the streets, but she said it was her only way to make a living, that she tried other things, she tried joining the army, she tried doing stuff, and none of it worked or she wasn't allowed. And she basically just decided this was her only option. Lori at this point said, you know, there was nothing I could do to help her. She wouldn't stop doing these things. And she would call me and she'd be telling me all these terrible things and I just couldn't even hear it. And this is typical in... Eileen's family is that when something bad happens, nobody wants to hear about it. Nobody wants to talk about it. And we'll see this later on in her relationship in Florida, but we'll talk about that in a minute. So she was actively working um, as a sex worker, and this is the way she'd go about it. She would hitchhike. She wasn't standing out in a street corner and obviously a sex worker. She didn't dress provocatively. She basically wore jeans and a t-shirt or shorts and a t-shirt. And she would flag down cars that she said she picked out specifically. They were usually older men. And she said this was because she felt safer with them than she did with younger guys. She said younger guys, a lot of times were on drugs and uh, she couldn't trust them. So her way of going about this, she would flag down a car. She would often first pretend to be a woman in need of help. She had car trouble. She had sick children. She had no money for her rent. She had gotten stranded. Boyfriend had kicked her out of the car. Something like that. She would tell a story. Then she'd kind of start a conversation with them. If she thought that they might be amenable to it, she would then say, hey, do you want to try to help me make some money? And usually she said they knew what that meant. It meant that that she would do sex for money and the transaction would then go forward. She told some of these men, and especially the ones who looked like they had a nicer car, might have a little money, she would say that she was a, quote, professional call girl. This was kind of her favorite title, to say that she was a professional call girl, which I think is a little bit different. I don't think they're out in the highways, but this is this was the term she liked to use. In 1985, she stole a wallet and a 38 caliber revolver from a customer. She also, at this time, started using her sister's name, Lori Grody, which was her married name. So there was a lot of stolen cars, driving without a license at this time. In 1985, there was an incident where she tried to evade a checkpoint because she was in a stolen vehicle. She was stopped at the checkpoint, and the officer saw a gun in the car. 
So she jumps out of the car and runs off on foot. There was another car down the road who was slowed down because of the checkpoint. She tried to carjack that car, but was quickly caught and arrested by the officers. Then it was in 1986 when Eileen met the love of her life, Tyra. I'm so excited to introduce you to a great new podcast created by two of my very favorite podcasters, Justin from The Generation Y and Tyler from Minds of Madness. They've just launched Deadly Misadventures, and I know you're going to love it. Here's a little sneak peek of what you'll hear. Subscribe to Deadly Misadventures on your favorite podcast app. Wondery Plus presents its newest podcast, Deadly Misadventures. Hosted by Justin from Generation Y and Tyler from the Minds of Madness. We'll bring you some of the most terrifying real-life stories of those who came face-to-face with death. Some who lived to tell the tale. While others succumbed to their deadly misadventures. I'm gonna do Doing bad things to you. You know the odds. The stakes are high. Care to take your chance with Lady Luck? To hear all Deadly Misadventure episodes exclusively ad-free, just visit wondery.fm slash deadly to start listening now. Doing bad things to you. Tyra Jolene Moore was born in 1962 in Ohio. She was raised by her father, Jack, and her stepmother, Marianne. Tyra's mother had died when she was just two years old. Tyra was always attracted to women, but never told her family she was gay. Tyra was a short woman, stocky build, with bright red hair. In early 1984, she moved to Florida and was living in Daytona Beach with her friends, a couple named Cammie and Dinky Green, and their children. They had been neighbors earlier that year before they met. They liked Tyra a lot, and when they needed some help with the rent, they decided to rent her room. Tyra was working at a motel as a maintenance worker and had lived in Florida since 1983. She had moved there after she received some money from a car accident settlement. After she moved to Florida, she began a relationship with a divorcee who had two children. But things went south, and they had a very bad breakup. Afterwards, when she entered the home without permission to get her things... Her ex called the police, and she was charged with breaking and entering. That was the only criminal mark on Tyra Moore's record. Tyra could be described as opposite of Eileen. She was very friendly. She was very respectful of others. She was always gainfully employed. She was a faithful churchgoer. She had lots of friends, and they all said that they never saw Tyra ever in a bad mood. In 1986, she met Eileen at a bar that catered to gay clientele in Daytona Beach. Eileen was now going by the name Lee. She actually was going by a lot of different names, but because she was sometimes using Lori Grody and some other, so it was just easier to go by the name Lee. Ty and Eileen became inseparable soon after meeting. Eileen told Tyra's friend Cammie that she had a pressure cleaning business. She would take off her days at a time, hitchhiking from job to job, she said. She normally left on Monday or Tuesday and was back by Friday to spend the weekend with her girlfriend. When she returned, she always had a lot of cash. 
Now, Tyra knew that her girlfriend was a sex worker, but she didn't talk about it. There's another one that Eileen is going to meet who is going to be very good at keeping secrets and not asking a lot of questions. That is going to not bode well later on. Eileen told Ty to quit her job, and she did. She told Ty, you make $150 a week. I make $150 a day. Just quit your job, and I'll take care of you. And Tyra eventually did. She and Lee laid around drinking and sleeping in, going to the bar at night. This was their habit. This was their routine. Just for future reference throughout the rest of this episode, um, I will use alternately Eileen and Lee. It's just something that happened when I was writing up the notes, and I don't want to confuse you, but you know, obviously it's the same person. Lee was always jealous of Tyra's other friendships because Lee didn't have any other friendships. Tyra had friends and Lee did not. Lee was jealous of her friendship with Cammie and was also jealous of her close relationship with her father and stepmother, Marianne, who lived in Ohio. Tyra kept um, in touch with them very often by phone and Eileen could see that they had a very close relationship and that, you know, really kind of bothered her because she felt like she didn't have family. So in August, Tyra and Lee moved out of Cammie's house and moved into their own place. They moved to a motel. They would move to a lot of different motels. That was kind of like places where you pay by the week and uh, they could afford them. Ty would often get hired at these places because she had you know, job skills like uh, being able to repair things and, you know, she would do some cleaning or whatever they needed. And uh, she got hired at this motel. There they got a free room. A manager there named Kathy became Tyra's friend. Tyra made friends pretty much with everybody that she met. And uh, they really liked her. She just had a good personality and was easy to get along with. So when they met Kathy, Eileen told her that she had been on the streets since she was the age of 11 selling sex to survive. Kathy liked Ty, but she thought Lee was a bad influence. Uh, She saw Lee's temper. She saw that she was a big drinker. And she's also noticed that Tyra joined her in the excessive drinking and often would ask her employer for small loans to tide them over until payday because they would drink up, you know, the little pay that she got. By the next spring, Kathy had asked them to leave. It was just becoming too much. They were owing her more money than they were paying And then Tyra and Lee together started hopping around from motel to motel. Sometimes they would camp out in the woods, out in the state campgrounds and forests that were nearby. When that got to be too much due to the weather or just being tired of being out of doors, they returned to Cammie's house. Now, Cammie was Tyra's friend and she wanted to help her, but ultimately the couple decided that they couldn't put up with Lee's behavior. She would fly off the handle a lot of times at Dinky, which was Cammie's husband. Lee, they could tell, never got along with men. She would get very angry. She would perceive slights and insults and judgments, especially by men. And she would just get really angry and start with all the violent talk. I'll kill you. I have a knife, you know, those kind of things. And they just were like, we can't have this around. And by the summer of 1987, Lee and Ty were bouncing around Daytona Beach. By now, Ty also had some minor scrapes with the law. In July of 1986 was a traffic violation. In 1987, she actually got into an altercation at a bar and was injured. Lee got into a lot of verbal altercations with people, mostly men, mostly in bars, mostly while drinking. She was loud. She was obnoxious. She was often drunk. She would tell these same stories over and over. She would brag about her marriage to a wealthy man. She would brag about her time hanging out with biker gangs, all of these things. 
by January of 1989, they were living in an RV park and residents at the park remember seeing both women shooting at um, beer cans with guns. They also often fought very loudly while drunk. And witnesses said that they saw at least one physical fight between the two women. By that fall, Tyra got another job in motel housekeeping in a motel in Ormond Beach. And there she became friends with a woman named Sandy Russell. By this time, they had been together for three years, and Lee had managed to isolate Ty from most of her other friends and family. When Lee was away on the road to go earn money doing sex work, Ty would spend time with her friend Sandy and with her other co-workers. When she was home, Lee preferred Ty to stay home with her, and she also actually preferred her to stay home all the time and wait for her to return. But Tyra seemed to be much more social and would hang out with her friends when Lee wasn't around. When she returned, Lee would bring home whatever she made, and she would buy Ty whatever she wanted. Like I said, Lee was not materialistic, but only seemed to care about using it to party and to show off for Ty and her friends, and to brag about what she could give Ty. Tyra would say later that she didn't like that Lee was having sex with strange men for money, but Lee would later claim that Ty pressured her to go out in the streets more and make more money. So now we're up to 1989. Some things are happening between Lee and Ty. They're having some problems by this time. One of the reasons why they moved around so much might have been the fact that Tyra was making friends. And as we know about people that try to control their partners, they like to keep them to themselves. They don't like to share them with anybody. And they don't like when they have outside friends that may take their time and attention away from them. So they kept moving around, and then she moves again to Ormond Beach. Now she's friends with Sandy Russell. It seems like everywhere they go, she's trying to isolate her, but it doesn't work. She continues to find friends. Not too long after they moved to the motel in Ormond Beach was the first known killing that we know of committed by Eileen Wernos. Let's talk a little bit about the timeline of the murders and the victims. On November 30th, 1989, Richard Charles Mallory, a 51-year-old television repair shop owner, came upon Eileen Wernos. Mallory from Palm Harbor was 5 feet 11 inches tall, 170 pounds. He was divorced and was a loner. He frequented topless bars in Tampa and Clearwater. He was a regular customer of several sex workers in the area, and they said that he paid very well. He was called generous by his customers. He was also dating other women, had recently broken up with a girlfriend of 18 months. At this point in his life, he was a little depressed. He was in debt. And family members would say that he was often paranoid and had locks changed often in his apartment. He was very, very cautious. On this day in late November, he left his store at 6 p.m. He had, as usual, a black attache case with him. He was stopping to do a service call before driving to his final destination. He was driving his tan 1977 Cadillac Coupe de Ville that had tinted windows. He would stop and pick up Eileen outside of Tampa on the Interstate 4. She said she was going to Daytona. They drank a little, and she would report that he smoked some marijuana. He stopped to buy her some beer that she had requested, At first, she told him that she had a pressure cleaning business. Then she later, she told him she was a sex worker. 
she said she was working that weekend because she needed to pay her rent. They drove to a quiet spot in the woods and arriving around 5 a.m. So they had driven, I mean, they had hung out and driven for a while. We'll also see this as a pattern with Eileen. If you look into the timelines of these crimes, she spends quite a bit of time with these men. It's not like a simple get in the car and, um, you know, let's go to a spot. Like she actually talks with them, finds out their stories. They hang out with her. Um, drink, all of these things. Now, we don't know if this large amount of time was voluntary or if she was holding weapons. On We have no idea. Okay, this is just the stories that we hear. But there was time spent with some of these men, and this was the first one that we know about. She would later say that he became violent and raped her and that she had shot him in self-defense. The first shot was fired from outside of the car. Mallory was still behind the wheel when he was struck in his right arm and the bullet lodged in his right side. He crawled out of the driver's side door and she ran around to the front of the car and fired again, hitting him in the torso. He fell back and she shot him two more times. One bullet hit him in his left lung. Uh, Autopsy reports stated that he may have lay dying, gasping for breath for more than 10 minutes. After he was dead, she turned out his pockets looking for money. She also took his identification. She found some cardboard and pieces of carpeting and dragged them over his body to conceal it. She threw some of his clothes into the woods and some she threw away later into a dumpster. She drove his Cadillac to the motel where she was staying with Tyra. Now, like I said, they had just moved into this motel. She would become friends with this other woman there, but... Right away, Lee had been looking for an apartment for them to move into, and she had found one. They were actually in the process of packing up their belongings yet again and moving to this place, which was a converted garage apartment. When Lee returned that morning after killing Richard Mallory, she told Tyra to finish packing. She said she'd gotten the rest of the money they needed to move. She said that some guy had loaned her his car to move their stuff. Ty noticed that there were some men's clothing, gloves, a jacket that she didn't recognize, as well as some other things, a suitcase, a box of papers that also wasn't familiar. She did not mention them. Lee then dropped Ty back at the motel to pick up her moped, and then Ty headed off to work, while Lee said she was leaving to return the car. She drove Richard Mallory's car to a deserted spot near the beach, She wiped down her fingerprints from the car, and she abandoned it there, dropping the keys in some bushes on the way home. Later that day, the abandoned car was found by a sheriff's deputy. A wallet was found a short distance away, containing some expired credit cards in the name of Richard Mallory. It was noted that the car had been wiped down and that there was blood found in the back seat. Also found nearby were two plastic cups and a mostly empty vodka bottle. Later that day, Eileen would say that she told Tyra that she had killed a man. She said that she'd shot him in self-defense and put his body in the woods. Tyra told her she didn't want to know anything, according to later reports. Tyra did not ask her any questions. Later, when news reports flashed pictures of Richard Mallory's car, Tyra recognized it as the one Lee had driven her to the new apartment in. But, again, asked no more questions didn't report anything, just basically ignored it and didn't want to think about it. (laughs) 
Voy a ponerme la vacuna Prevnar 20 porque estoy en riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica, la cual pudiera llevarme al hospital. Así que preguntaré sobre Prevnar 20. 65 años o más, puedes estar en mayor riesgo de contraer la neumonía neumocósica. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico acerca de vacunarte con Prevnar 20. Vacuna conjugada antineumocósica 20 valente, una vacuna de Pfizer que puede ayudar a proteger contra la neumonía neumocósica con una sola dosis. Prevnar 20 está aprobada para adultos para ayudar a prevenir infecciones contra 20 cepas de la bacteria que causa la neumonía neumocósica. La aprobación continua puede depender de un estudio de apoyo. No uses Prevnar 20 si has tenido una reacción alérgica grave a la vacuna o a sus componentes. Adultos con sistemas inmunitarios debilitados pueden tener una respuesta reducida a la vacuna. El efecto secundario más reportado fue dolor en el área de la inyección. Para más efectos secundarios comunes e información completa de prescripción, llama al 1-855-213-2138 o visita Prevnar 20 en español.com. Pregunta a tu médico o farmacéutico sobre Prevnar 20. On December 13th, almost two weeks after the murder, Richard Meldry's body was found. He was fully clothed, his jeans were fastened and zipped, and his belt was buckled. His pockets were turned inside out. There was also jewelry missing, as well as a 35-millimeter camera and a Polaroid camera and a radar detector. Eileen had pawned the radar detector and camera for $30. At that point, she was required to leave her fingerprints. This will come back later. Richard Mallory's employee also said he would have had a black attache case with several hundred dollars inside. The autopsy revealed that he had four gunshot wounds to the chest fired from a 22 caliber weapon. Detective Larry Horzeppa would come to the conclusion that his murder was most likely female. Mallory, he said, was paranoid and would never have trusted a strange man to get into his car. There was also evidence that he'd been drinking with one other individual. The car had been found with the seat forward driven by a shorter person than Richard Mallory was. Lee was five foot six. A twenty-two was often the weapon of choice for women, he noted. The next victim wouldn't happen until the following spring, some six months later. On May 18, 1990, David Spears, age 47, went missing. He had married his childhood sweetheart. They had divorced in 1984. But he was still seeing his ex-wife, Dee, They spent weekends together, but she lived in Orlando, which is about 100 miles away from his home. David Spears was six foot four. He was quiet. He was a loner. And he and Dee had three children. That day, he had called Dee and told her to expect him by 3 p.m. the next day, but he never arrived. Just about 30 minutes before he would have reached his final destination, he picked up Eileen. For some reason, he drove the truck deep into the woods. Eileen said they arrived about 1 a.m., so about nine hours passed. Again, this is something we don't know what was going on during those nine hours. She said they were starting to fool around, and he wanted her to climb in the back of the truck. She said that she saw a lead pipe there. She said he then became violent with her. She grabbed her bag that she always carried. It was a duffel bag and with the gun in it and that she shot him for the first time while he was standing by the tailgate of the truck. Wounded, he tried to run for the driver's door to get behind the wheel. She shot him five more times, at least two times in the back as he retreated. She stole all the cash he had on him, between $500 and $700. She left his body and took the truck, dropping off anything she thought might be of value at her place, tools, etc. Tyra saw the truck. Lee once again said she'd borrowed it. Ty again didn't ask any questions. Lee drove it far away, stripping it of the license plate. 
It wasn't until May 28th that David Spears' truck was found in Marion County. Just a couple of weeks later, on May 31st, 1990, was victim number three. Charles Karskadden, 40 years old, was a road worker and a rodeo rider. He left his mother's home in Missouri at 4 p.m. to drive to Tampa to pick up his fiancée, Peggy. He had gotten a job in Missouri and was set to bring Peggy back to the state to live with him. He was driving a 1975 Cadillac. Outside Tampa, not far from his destination, he runs into Lee. His car would end up in a deserted area off the highway. He was shot nine times in the back seat of his car. His wallet was taken, and during this time when this happened, Tyra was away working until June 3rd. So it was basically the Memorial Day weekend. The next day, David Spears' body was found in the woods in Citrus County. He was nude, only wearing a camouflage baseball cap. He was lying on his back with his legs apart, arms outstretched. The autopsy on June 4th found six bullets in his torso, one or two fired from behind. On June 6, 1990, an unidentified body was found in the woods in Pasco County. It was a male, nude, covered with green electric blankets and weeds. Nine bullet wounds were found made by a 22 caliber weapon. The medical examiner said the bullet wounds cl- were closely grouped together, and by this they concluded that the victim moved very little while being shot and that the shooter was facing him. He would be identified on December 12th as Charles Karskadden. On June 7, 1990, Peter Seams left his home in Jupiter, Florida, to drive north to New Jersey to visit his mother. He was a 65-year-old retired merchant marine and a part-time missionary. He had been married for 25 years to his wife, Ursula, At the time of his trip, his wife Ursula was away in Europe working, as was his son. They were doing missionary work. After visiting his mother in New Jersey, he was then to drive on to Arkansas in July to visit his son. He picked up Eileen on Interstate 95, or he met her in a coffee shop. Her accounts differ. She said she was very drunk. He gave her a ride. They drove about 200 miles north of where he had set off from and ended up just north of Savannah, Georgia. It was over a three-hour drive straight through. Here's my question, first of all. Why did she go so far with him? Where was she going? Because she worked around the Daytona beach area most of the time. Maybe because she was drunk? She didn't know how far she was going? I don't know. It's hard hard to believe that you're not going to know how long you're in this car. And if she had been totally passed out, I don't know that he would just keep driving her. I mean, where was she going, right? So they stopped off, like I said, just north of Savannah, Georgia. And she said that they walked into the woods to have sex. Now, I've driven that road all the way up to Savannah, Georgia and beyond. Um, There's a lot of woods. I mean, there's a lot of trees. There's a lot of um, isolated places, uh, dirt roads. It's just strange to me to go that far. Anyway, she said they walked into the woods to have sex. And then she said that he assaulted her. Again, her story was that she pulled out the gun and they struggled with it. A couple of shots went off kind of into the air, she said, and then she was able to turn it on him and shoot him. She didn't remember how many times. Again, went through his belongings. She said she found about $400 in the stack of Bibles that he always took with him to hand out. She said she was so drunk she doesn't remember where she left his body. 
it has never been found. I'll talk about this later on, but she did try to take investigators to where she thought maybe they had gone, and she drew a blank. So she was either in the blackout drunk stage at that point, but she could not remember where they were. She then drove his 1988 silver gray Pontiac Sunbird back home to Daytona Beach. Both she and Tyra drove around in it for weeks. Lee told Tyra she had borrowed it from a friend in Orlando. Here's the thing. Tyra knows that Lee does not have any friends, much less friends that are going to lend her a car. Again, it was something that Lee told her. She didn't question it. She didn't ask questions. She just stuck her head in the sand. So on June 7th, uh, Charles Karskadden's car was found in Marion County off of I-75 with the license plates stripped off. It wasn't until June 22nd, so almost two weeks later, that Peter Seam's family reported him missing to the Jupiter police, again, because his wife and son were out of the country. And uh, when they, they finally communicated with his mother and he hadn't been there and all of these things were going back and forth, but it took a while for them to figure out um, that he was missing. Okay, so now we get to 4th of July. Now, this is a whole um, story here. That we'll call this the Lee and Ty show because I can totally like picture this in my head. Okay. Tyra worked all day, getting off work about 4 p.m. Lee and Tyra then drove around in the Pontiac, Steam's car, to drink and to find fireworks. And well, I guess when it got dark, they were going to find fireworks. At some point, Lee said that she was too drunk to drive, and so Tyra took over. As they're driving down this road, Tyra sees a sign for the Seminole Indian Reservation coming up and decides she wants to head there. So they drove for a while down a winding road. Tyra was also drunk. She takes the curve too fast and she loses control of the car. The car smashes through a wire fence and goes off the road and the passenger side of the car slams into a tree. Lee tells her they have to get out of this car, get the hell out of this car, right? And they take off on foot. So nearby residents of this place heard this crash, and this couple, Rhonda and Jim Bailey, came out to investigate. They know there's car wrecks there. Apparently, there was this this blind curve, and uh, it happened, you know, every so often. So they went out to make sure everybody was okay, see if they could help. Once they get out there, they saw two women screaming at each other and throwing beer cans. When they approached the blonde woman, Lee, of course, she pleads with them not to call the police. She said that her father lived right up the road and she was going to go get him and he was going to help her tow the car out. No problem. You know, it's fine. We're good. Nothing to see here, right? Trying to get them to go away. So the women take off on foot up the road. Later, the couple said that they see the women returning to the car. She sees the taller one, Lee, ripping off the license plate and throwing it as far as she can into the field. Then, incredibly, she tries to drive the car away. They couldn't believe it, but they were able to get this car moving. But it just went a bit down the road, and then the tire blew out. They continued walking down the road at that point, got out of the car, started walking again. Lee was bleeding from her arm and shoulder where she'd been cut by the broken window. Other witnesses saw these women walking down the street as well. Here's the descriptions of these women. And this is pretty interesting. You know, you talk about eyewitness descriptions and they could be all over the map, right? But it's not too bad. It's, you know, you judge for yourself how close they got. So the two women were described as the first woman was 
a tall blonde, about 40 years old. Eileen was 34 at this time, but she probably did look much older. And an overweight male between 280 and 300 pounds. <laughs> okay, that's, I don't know if she was quite that big, but, uh, but she did always wear a baseball cap and, you know, short hairs. And they, she was, you know, they, she could have looked like a male from a distance. They also said that the blonde looked drunk. Here's another description. One of the women was five foot ten or five foot eleven. Eileen was five foot six. They said she was about one hundred and thirty pounds. The other woman was about five foot four, mannish in appearance, weighing up to two hundred pounds. Here's another description. They described Lee as six foot tall. I, you know, this is the funny thing. <laughs> okay, did you guys see that movie Monster? That was about this. And you, if you haven't seen it, you have to see it. I'm sure most people have seen it. It was about Eileen Warnos. And Eileen is played by Charlize Theron, who won like an Academy Award for her portrayal. And Tyra is played by Christina Ricci. So think of those two. Now, in the movie, Charlize Theron looks very tall, you know, thinner, but still kind of, you know, not, not a tiny thing. And Christina Ricci, of course, is this little, cute, short, dark-haired girl. They were completely the opposite. You saw them in real life. Tyra was much bigger than um, Eileen. And I don't think she was taller. I think she was shorter. She was a couple inches shorter than Eileen was. But she was not this little thing. They were pretty, you know, evenly matched as far as strength and size, I would say. For some reason, she came across as much taller. I don't know why that was. Maybe because she was standing next to a shorter person. I don't know. Anyway, so the, the last one said that Lee was six foot tall, blonde, big boned and heavy, and that Ty was short and heavy with dark red hair. Well, they finally got her hair color. She did have dark red hair. On July 7th, sketches were drawn up of these two women by a police artist. Another witness saw her rip off the front license plate and throw it into the field. Once they were out of sight, he retrieved it. The car was found to be registered to Peter Seams, reported as missing and endangered. The car was towed away and searched. Beer cans lay on the floor. Fireworks were in the back seat. Both side front windows were broken. The windshield was also shattered. Blood was found on the trunk the left and also on the left rear passenger door. The column between the two doors on the driver's seat, passenger seat, steering wheel, and driver's door handle. The other thing they would find would be a palm print in blood on the side of the car. And that's going to come back later. Okay, so that was July 4th. On July 30th, 1990, Eugene Troy Burress would be the next victim. He was 50 years old, 5 foot 6 inches tall, 155 pounds. He had previously been a business owner who sold his pool company and moved to Alcala, Florida. Now he was driving a truck for Gilchrist Sausage Company. He had two adult daughters and three adult stepdaughters with his wife of 16 years, Rose, who went by the name Sharon. He was also a grandfather. He was very, very close to his sister, Letha, who called him by his nickname, Buddy. He was driving his truck and came across Eileen somewhere. He had started his route at 6 a.m. and should have returned by 5.30 p.m. Now, we only have her version, of course. She said she'd gotten in his truck and they'd found a place to park where she was going to have sex with him. 
um, like all the other stories before. He became violent, she says, threw $10 at her and said he was going to rape her. She said at this point she had already taken off all her clothes. She says she took out her gun. They struggled over it. The first bullet pierced his heart and then punctured his lung. This wound would have been quickly fatal. But Eileen said that he turned and was going to run, and she shot him again in the back. She covered his body with some palm fronds. He was still wearing his blue jeans and his uniform shirt with his name embroidered on it, which would make it easy to identify him later on. She searched the truck and found a cash box with over $300 in it. An ex-boyfriend slash roommate of Eileen's in the early 1980s had been a driver for a sausage company and said he distinctly remembers talking to her about the money that he carried in, in his truck. So some would believe that she had targeted this uh, man because he was driving a truck and she knew that he would be carrying cash. This ex-boyfriend or roommate actually said he actually knew Troy Barres at the time of his murder. Eileen then drove off in the sausage truck and threw everything out that could ID it as his. She threw out his credit cards, clipboard, business cards, etc. But the truck ran out of gas, and she left it on the shoulder of the road and walked away. Troy Barres's wife and sister would file a missing persons report that night. At 2 a.m., a deputy with the Marion County um, Sheriff's Department came across the truck. They matched it to the report. There was no signs of struggle or foul play in the truck. They allowed the company to come and get it and tow it away, but they did not process it for fingerprints, which was a very bad oversight. On August 4th, Troy Barres's body would be found in a wooded area off of State Road 19 in Marion County. He was lying face down with two bullets in him from a 22. So this is early August now. Right about this same time in August, Tyra told a friend that Lee was moving to Las Vegas and she was looking for a place. She asked her friend if she could be her roommate. Her friend agreed. However, when she moved in, Lee came along with her. Ty said it was just temporary, just for a couple of days until uh, Lee hitched the ride to Vegas or whatever. But they stuck around and it became a big hassle they were asked to move out by, on August 27th. They moved into another motel. By now, Tyra was also having problems with uh, coworkers, and she was having angry outbursts at work. One thing that was happening is that Lee was getting her in trouble by calling repeatedly at her place of work. Ty got into an argument with a coworker, and then when a supervisor told her she was fired, she attacked him. She was then fired um, for good on September 3rd. So when she went and told Lee that she had been fired, Lee started talking and getting in her head and telling her that the reason she was fired was because of sexual harassment and that she was being harassed because she was a lesbian. Lee would also say that the manager had fired her girlfriend because she wouldn't have sex with him. She told Tyra that she should sue. Lee often threatened lawsuits. She actually had some lawsuits in the past. She actually won one of them, and I can't remember exactly what it's for, but she was always talking about suing people. Tyra then returned to the motel after, I guess, maybe getting her head full of all of these, uh, these things, and she threatened her boss. He then filed a, re a police report. Lee then began talking about all of Tyra's problems at work, and she was threatening Tyra's coworkers. She was telling other people that she was going to get Tyra's co-workers, she was said she was going to kill them. 
At that point, Ty began of thinking of moving back to Ohio. So that was in um, early September. So Tyra now is making plans and talking to her family and thinking about moving back home. On September 11, 1990, Dick Humphreys became victim number six. Humphreys was 56 years old, um, over six feet tall, 200 pounds. He was shot seven times. Three of the shots were fired into his back. The last shot was to the back of his head. He was murdered a day after his 35th wedding anniversary. He had been an investigator in child custody cases. After she killed him, Lee drove his 1988 Oldsmobile Forenza to the motel. It was observed by motel managers and also Ty. Ty also saw Lee with a briefcase going through papers. Not long afterwards, Ty saw a news report on television that identified the car as belonging to Dick Humphreys, who'd been found murdered on September 12th. A week later, his car was found 125 miles north from where his body was discovered. It had been wiped down inside and out. Investigators learned that Humphreys was very critical of hitchhikers and believed he would never have stopped for one. However, we know that Eileen had used other ruses, car trouble, etc. He was an ex-cop, and they also thought that he would not have been conned easily. Lee and Ty were now on the move. They were more secretive. They kept mostly to themselves. Lee took to wearing sunglasses and a ball cap all the time. On November 18, 1990, we get to the last victim. Walter Gino Antonio was 62 years old. He was a truck driver and a part-time security guard. He was also a reserve police officer for Brevard County Sheriff's Department. He was driving a Pontiac Grand Prix. Eileen said that he had picked her up hitchhiking. He told her he was on his way to Alabama. She asked him if he'd help her, quote, make a little money, unquote, and he agreed. They drove out into the woods, down a dirt trail off of Bar Pit Road. She said that she was very drunk on this day. Eileen says she took off all her clothes and got into the back seat. She said he took out his wallet and told her he was a cop. She said that he was trying to rip her off. Quote, he was trying to get a piece of ass for free, unquote. She got angry and then they started arguing. They got out of the car and he ran to her side. She took out the gun. They struggled. He fell, got up and ran. She shot him in the back. She shot him a second time in the back at close range. She thought she might have also shot him in the back of the head. She threw everything out of his car, took his gold nugget ring. He was engaged to be married, and this was um, bought for him by his fiancée. And then she drove his car to the Fairview Motel. She asked the motel manager if she could park it behind the motel. Now, at this time, Tyra was away. She had gone out of town to go visit her family for Thanksgiving. So Lee tells the motel manager, a woman named Rose, a story about having a married boyfriend and that this was his car and she didn't want his wife to see it parked in front of the motel. The manager noted that it was a large maroon car with no license plate. Two days later, it was gone. Eileen had driven the car into the woods and left it in Brevard County. On November 19th, Antonio's body was found. He was nude except for socks, and he was ID'd by his fingerprints. Tyra still gone at this time on November 22nd on Thanksgiving. Lee was alone at the motel. 
She was a regular at the gas station market close by. She used to buy her beer and cigarettes there. She wandered in on Thanksgiving and talked to the clerk for a while. And Lee would talk and talk and talk. She loved to talk about her life. And it was always really sad stories and all of the bad things she'd gone through. So she was talking to this clerk about her grandmother, her grandfather, her life growing up as a neglected child, her you know life being abused and sexually uh, assaulted by people. I mean, just everything. And this was one quote that the clerk um, told investigators later that I thought was noteworthy. Lee said, the pain, the pain. And the only thing that gets rid of the pain is the hate. On November 24th, Antonio's car was found. Over 1,000 miles had been put on it since his disappearance. So she was apparently driving around a lot during this time when Tyra was away. Who knows where she went? On November 25th, Ty returns from Ohio. Lee gives her Antonio's gold ring. Now she starts calling Ty her wife. On November 29th, news outlets release information about a possible highway serial killer and broadcast sketches of two women who had been seen fleeing the scene of an accident involving the missing man, Peter Seam's car. That same day, Ty calls her stepmother to ask her to send her bus fare to go home. Okay, here's something I have to bring up. Tyra was gone. Apparently, later on, she would say that she was afraid of Lee, and that was the only reason she was still there, and she really didn't love her anymore, and she didn't want to be with her, and she didn't know what was going on, and she just didn't want to be around, okay? But she came home from Ohio, where she could have stayed in Ohio. She had nothing going on in Florida. She had no job. They had really no place to live. But you know, again, it could be something that Lee was able to convince her to come home. Maybe she felt bad. Maybe she felt guilty. Who knows? But anyway, she comes home. But then right after this police sketch comes out in the news, she's telling her stepmother, hey, I need to, I need to get out of here. I need to go home. On December 2nd, they tell the motel manager, Rose, that they're leaving because they're splitting up. And she was very surprised by this. They would rent a storage unit using the name Cami Green. Remember, that's their friend. who had a driver's license go missing right about the time they left her place. So this is what helping somebody else gets you when you're a friend of Eileen Wernos. So she and Tyra moved the boxes they had containing their stuff into the storage unit. In those boxes, there was, among other things, was a 45 uh, caliber handgun, a toolbox, a suitcase, a television, and a briefcase. Around December 3rd, Tyra leaves for Ohio on a Greyhound bus. So pretty quickly, all of this is happening. So Lee hops around. We're not sure where she goes for the next couple of days, but she ends up returning to the Fairview Hotel alone and upset, asking to rent a room for a night on December 5th. Um, on December 11th, Charles Karskadden's mother calls police after seeing reports of two women who may have been tied to highway murders. He's still missing. He's been missing since June. She says that he can be ID'd by a wire in his jaw from an accident. Charles Karskadden is identified as the John Doe body found in the woods on June 6th after that. That same day, Lee moves out of the Fairview Motel to another motel. There's more leads coming in about Tyra Moore and Lee, except that she has used so many different aliases and various IDs that it's going to be hard to kind of, you know, really 
ultimately identify her. Some of these IDs she used are Susan Blayovic, Cammie Green, who was Tyra's friend and the person that they lived with for a little uh, time, and Lori Grody, her own sister. Here's another strange lead I wonder about. Uh, a man named Billy Copeland, who was a neighbor of Lee and Ty's in the trailer park for, uh, a year earlier, told the police that he knew that Lee went hitchhiking carrying a gun. He said he also recognized Richard Mallory's photo, and this is the first victim, as a man who visited in a van, giving them a television. Now remember, Richard Mallory owned a television repair shop. For some reason, this was never corroborated. I would really have liked to know. Because, okay, so going back to the first victim, and this is what I wanted to come back to, is that a lot of times we'll see the serial killer, we go back and we look at the timeline of their killings. Sometimes the first one may not have been planned or that planned. It may have been something that was a fantasy in their mind or something they had thought about or something they even aspired to do. But the first killing sometimes is unplanned, chaotic, you know, just not well thought out. And I kind of wonder about this, about the Richard Mallory thing. Did she know him? Did she somehow know him? Because remember, Richard Mallory was the guy who, you know, by all reports, did frequent sex workers, topless bars, did hire sex workers, and they knew him. They even investigated some women that he paid for sex from and then cleared them. So, you know, Lee's been a sex worker in this area for quite a while. He may have come across her. Was he paying her with the television set? Did she become a friend? And he said, hey, I've got, you know, this old television set. It's really not worth much, but she can have it. And did he bring it to her? Is that how she knew him? Is that how he ended up in her her sights. It's, it's interesting to think about. It's possible because there was a long gap in between when Richard Mallory's killing and then the next killing, and then they were quicker. They came faster within a few weeks of each other. Did she do this thing? It got out of hand. She did it when she was drunk. Something transpired between the two of them, and then this happened, that she shot him and killed him, but didn't mean to. But then after that, did that serve to feed her need for revenge, to feed her need for power and control that she never felt in her life, to feed her need at rage towards older men in her life, like her grandfather who had mistreated her? It's interesting to think about that that could have been a catalyst for her later acts, and it wasn't random. Maybe it was something that happened because this was somebody she knew. She would never say that she did know him, but she did have a different story later, and we'll get to that. Okay, on December 20th, a call came in with a tip about a lesbian couple who hung out at a bar in Port Orange and were staying at the Fairview Motel. This leads investigators to contact Rose McNeil, who was a motel manager who knew them. Eileen had stayed at the Fairview three separate times. What they found by looking at the records of this motel is that Eileen had paid them, again, under a different name, we'll talk about that in a second, that Eileen had paid the most amount of cash ever to, um, to Rose for the motel room between November 17th and 19th, right during the time that Walter Gino Antonio had been murdered. They heard that while Ty was away, 
Eileen, who Rose knew as Cammy Green, had asked to park a maroon car with no license tags, the same description of Antonio's car. Okay, so now we're getting closer. They're starting to say, hmm, these things are starting to match up here. But who is this Cammy Green? Now, they don't know her as Eileen Wernos. Nobody knows her as Eileen Wernos. Okay, she's Lee. She's Cammy Green. She's whatever IDs that she's going by. On December 21st, the investigators ran the names of Cammy Marsh Green and other known aliases through pawn shop records in Volusia, which is where I guess these pawn shops were at in that area. They found that on December 6, 1989, somebody by the name of Cammie Green had pawned a 35-millimeter camera and a radar detector. Both of these matched items owned by Richard Mallory and pawned just days after his murder. So when she pawned these items, she was required to leave a thumbprint. So now they have a thumbprint. In June of 1990, this person going by Cammie Green also pawned a box of tools the same type of tools owned by David Spears, whose body was found on June 1st. Now, they couldn't track these to be completely sure that they belonged to him. There was no way to trace that, but it was, again, another coincidence here. Cammie Green also pawned a gold nugget ring on December 7th. This would positively be ID'd by Walter Antonio's fiancé as identical to the ring that she'd given him. On December 22nd, the thumbprint matched an arrest record for, now get this, still not Eileen Wuornos, Lori Christine Grody, arrested in Volusia County in June of 1986 for stolen vehicle, no license, and for carrying a concealed weapon, a loaded 22. Okay, so now they're saying, man, we're looking for this Lori Christine Grody now, right? Of course, that's her sister. They still had not heard the name Eileen Wuornos. They also found that there was two outstanding warrants, failure to appear in Volusia and Pasco counties. Finally, with these two outstanding warrants, they found the prints that connected them to Eileen Carol Wernos. Wow, that's some detective work right there, man. And <laughs> you just follow the trail and follow the trail until you get it there, right? Now they look to see if these match the bloody palm print found on Peter Seam's wrecked car on July 4th. Guess what? It was a match to Eileen Carol Wernos. Cammie Green was found because <laughs> they had to find her and find out what the heck is this connection to Cammie Green. She told them of Lee and Tyra Moore living in her home and the disappearance of her driver's license during that time. So Rose McNeil, the motel manager, was shown photos, and she identified Tyra Moore and Cammie Green as the women she knew. Okay, so at this point, Tyra's out of town. She's gone. She's taken the Greyhound bus and gotten the heck out of Dodge. Eileen would say that she was gay, but she was bisexual because she was still seeing men at this time. Not only was it the sex work she was doing with was with men, but she was still hook up with other guys, date other guys, and sleep with other guys. There was a guy who was a customer of hers named Dick Mills, and she came across him somewhere in town and ended up spending a few days leading up to Christmas Eve with him. On Christmas Eve, he needed to be with his family. Kids and family were coming into town, something like that. So he, of the goodness of his heart, rented her a motel room for one night so she would not be homeless on Christmas. So that was... um 
one of the other guys that she was seeing. Again, still calling Tyra, still trying to, you know, keep that relationship going at the same time. So it was until late December that detectives actively started searching for Eileen Wernos. On January 8, 1991, Eileen was spotted at Port Orange Pub in Harbor Oaks and placed under surveillance. Undercover officers disguised as patrons struck up a conversation with her. During these conversations, she said she was being hassled by cops because she, quote, looked like a serial killer they were looking for, unquote. She also talked about her breakup with her girlfriend. She was carrying a small suitcase with her, and she mentioned that it was all she had left. And she also showed them a padlock key on her belt that she said was her life. And it turned out this was the storage unit key. This woman cannot stop flapping her lips and always gives them more to go on. So she left the bar drunk. She walked down, down the street to the last resort bar, which was her old haunt. Okay, you guys probably have heard of the last resort bar. If you watch the movie Monster, it's depicted and there. It was actually filmed in front of the last resort bar. And you can go to the last resort bar now. It looks almost the same exact way it did then, except for, of course, now it has some painting on the wall uh, that looks like Eileen Warnos, and it has the list of her victims on the wall. It's kind of infamous now for being the bar that Eileen Wuornos hung out in and was ultimately arrested in front of. So as a matter of fact, they kind of used that reputation as, you know, just a marketing thing, I guess. One of their slogan that they have on their beer mugs and stuff now says, cold beer and killer women. Okay, that's the last resort bar. This is the ultimate dive bar. You guys can go look at pictures online. I don't know. I might like to take a little trip there. And I don't mind dive bars. I'll go into a dive bar. That one, I don't think I'd go alone. I think if I'm ever in the area and you guys want to come along, let's, let's do it. All right. So anyway, she goes down to the last resort bar and she's there hanging out, having a beer. Um, she was already drunk. She ends up sleeping on the on the porch of this bar in an, on an old car bench. Um, yeah, they, they still have a car bench there. It doesn't look like an old one. It looks like a pretty new one. So the next morning she wakes up and she goes back into the bar like you do, right? <laughs> you sleep on the bar porch and you wake up, you go back into the bar, have a beer. Later that day when the undercover agents are back on shift, they enter the bar and act like, hey, look who it is. Look who's here. Hey, what's going on? Let's have a beer. Just like they happened to run into her again, right? This was their ploy. What they wanted to do was they wanted to get her away from the bar to make the arrest. They didn't know if she had a gun on her, you know, all kinds of stuff. They basically just wanted her away from that bar on the outside, in the open, where they could arrest her. So one, one of these two undercover agents becomes very chummy with her. He probably could tell that she probably was flirting with him a little bit, right? So, you know, she's talking about her life like she does. She's talking about her life and how she's got nothing. And man, you know, I've been, you know, living rough for a while and I need to get, need to get a place to stay. I got to get, you know, all of that kind of stuff. She always, that's what she did. She started talking about her life to everybody. And it sounds pretty sad. Well, this undercover agent says, hey, you know, seeing as, you know, it's just the holidays and all, whatever. And, you know, it seemed like a nice gal 
why don't I rent you a motel room down the road here? You know, you said you wanted to take a shower. You said you needed to get a good night's sleep, right? She, of course, is very suspicious because, you know, she's been around this rodeo before once or twice. And she's like, a, yeah, sure, whatever. So he actually goes down to this motel that's down the street. He registers her there and he comes back and gives her the room key. She, you know, again, still suspicious and not too dumb when it comes to street smarts anyway. She calls the motel to make sure it's legit. They tell her, yep, your name's on here and you're in room number what, whatever. So cool. So she's at the bar. She's like, okay, cool, right? So she starts to leave the bar and she tells the guy, hey, why don't you come pick me up around 7 or 8 o'clock tonight? And then she says, come alone, we'll party. She walks out of the bar. Cops descend on her. She's arrested just after 5 p.m. So they arrest her under the Lori Grody outstanding warrant. So this is, this is what they pull her in on. So while she's goes, they're sent, taking her to the police station and getting ready to interview her, they book her and they take her stuff. She's having a fit about her suitcase and about her key. So don't lose my key. That's my life. You know, like she was telling the other guy. Of course, that's the storage locker key. They go to the storage locker. While, like I said, they're, you're getting ready to interview her. Among other things, they find Richard Mallory's maroon-colored Polaroid camera in the storage locker. They find pawn receipts. They find all kinds of things tying her back to some of the victims. So that's January 9th. They also travel to find Tyra Moore, who they know, you know, her family lives in Ohio. They finally locate her at a sister's home in Pennsylvania, and they interview her. She immediately says she will tell them everything she knows. She also agrees to go with them to Florida, and she also gives them items that she has been given by Lee over the years. Some of these are hoping to tie to some of the victims, of course. So they transport Tyra a couple days later to Daytona. Lee is in jail, of course. She's sitting in jail on this warrant. And they tell her, we need you to get her to talk and tell about these murders. So they take Tyra to a motel in Daytona. They have her do is they send a letter to Lee in jail. And tell her, I'm here in Daytona. I heard that you got arrested. I want to talk to you. Please call me at this motel room. It was supposed to be phone calls instead of her going to talk to her. Because, of course, they're going to record these phone calls. So immediately after she gets this letter, she starts calling Tyra. And she actually calls her over 11 calls in the next about three days. During these phone calls, Tyra is telling her, you know, I have the police coming. I hear they're, they're going to my parents' house in, in Ohio. They're going to my sister's Pennsylvania. You're going to get me in trouble. You're going to get my family in trouble. I'm so upset. I don't know what to do. I'm panicked. I'm, you know, scared. And for the first day or so, uh, Lee just keeps telling her, don't worry about it. You're not implicated. You know, nothing happened. Basically, she's still denying everything. She's saying nothing happened. She didn't do anything, whatever. But the police, of course, keep saying, you got to get her to talk. You got to get her to talk. So then Tyra changed tactics. And, you know, first she's angry with her. Then she's crying. Then she starts saying, I, I don't want to live. I, I'm going to just, I can't take this. I'm just going to kill myself. That kind of message she's giving. Now, 
Lee, of course, she still, you know, loves Tyra, says, okay, you know what? Don't worry about it. I will take care of it. I will take care of it. You're not going to be in trouble. I promise. I'll tell them everything. I'll tell them you had nothing to do with it. You didn't know anything. All of that. So now they got it. They got it, right? Pretty much as soon as she gets off the phone, she goes and she tells the guard she needs to talk to somebody and she wants to make a confession. And they bring Eileen in and they give her an attorney and uh, he basically says, don't say anything, don't say anything. She goes, nope, I'm telling him everything. You can't stop me. Basically, this is what has to happen. I need to take care of Tyra. Her confession was three hours long. It was both audio recorded and videotaped, and you can watch it. It's online. It's pretty famous deal. Like I said, it was a three-hour interview. She confessed to the murders of Richard Mallory, Troy Barres, David Spears, Dick Humphreys, Charles Carscadden, and Walter Gino Antonio. She's very calm during the whole thing. She's basically just giving them the facts of what she did, of, you know, the locations, um, the dates, if she remembers them how many times she shot them, um, what she took, all of that. She's giving them every detail, very matter-of-factly. She's not upset. She's not crying. She's not angry. She's not scared. She's very calm. She sometimes, you know, kind of laughs. She's smiling. She's, she seems to be enjoying having the attention of these detectives and giving them all this information. She says over and over and over, Tyra didn't know anything. Tyra didn't know anything. Tyra didn't know anything. What she was doing was making sure that they knew that she was responsible and her girlfriend was not. On January 17th, the sheriff told the press that the investigation was over and that Eileen Carol Wernos had been charged with one count of first-degree murder for the murder of Richard Mallory and other charges were pending. Tyra, for her defense, would claim that she had been afraid of Lee. She claimed no knowledge of the murders. And Lee would go back and forth on that. We'll talk about that at the end here. But it was established that Eileen had told Tyra of Mallory's murder soon after it happened. Actually, that almost that same day, I believe. Tyra was let off the hook by the cops because of her cooperation. There was also no evidence that two women were involved the only thing um, they could tie her to was the car crash in, on July 4th. Cammy Green, her once good friend and uh, former uh, landlord, had a different story. She would say that Tyra was not scared of Lee, that she was very capable and was very in control of, of things and could take care of herself. She said that she never saw her afraid of Lee. One incident that Cammie would point to, to her, suggested that Ty was, if not an accomplice, at least in her opinion, had taken part in Lee's planning of these murders. And she points to this conversation. Back in 1987, Ty and Lee came to her and said they were going to be like Bonnie and Clyde. Lee told her in front of Ty that she was, quote, going to do something no woman has ever done before and people are going to respect me, unquote. She said that Tyra and Lee said that they would be doing society a favor. Later, when Eileen claimed that she killed the men in self-defense, she would say that they were, quote, cheating on their wives, unquote, and had raped her, 
and that she did society a favor. So who knows? That could have just been, you know, Lee and Tyra living in a fantasy world, just talking, just thinking, you know, they were being badasses. Who knows? But Cammy thought there might be something to it. Once Lee was behind bar, she didn't stop talking. She reveled at being in the spotlight. She was talking with at least one aspiring filmmaker, and interviews would come later. She seemed to brag about her exploits at times, and she constantly followed the stories about herself in the newspapers. Soon after her confession, she told a female correctional officer who took notes of the conversation stories about working as a call girl for nine years, and she told her that she'd had sex with 250,000 men. Okay, I did the math. (laughs) Um, She would have had to sleep with 76 men a day, so very highly improbable. But it's funny because that number is thrown around so much in all the research that um, I was reading, 250,000 men. Come on. So she told this uh, correctional officer about the victim, Charles Karskadden. She said if she hadn't kill, have killed him, he would have killed other people. She reported one of her victim's last words as, I'm going to die. Oh, my God, I'm dying. She said she could have killed a lot more, but she didn't want to. Quote, I'm really just a nice person, unquote, she told the correctional officer. There is something I, that kept coming up for me, and again, um, just in my own theory, my own opinion, that Eileen Wernus's behavior pointed a lot to me of a borderline personality disorder. And the reason I say this is because she ran hot and cold with people. Like, she was with people, like she'd have a good friend, but before long she would just have this huge blowout with them, and she would basically, they would be her enemy from then on, Right. She either loves you or she hates you. There's no gray. It's a sign of of just a borderline personality. Now, not necessarily, but it is one. And I'll, I think I'm a little bit vindicated when I tell you what the psychologist report during her um, trial would say. And we'll get to that in a minute. By this time in her life, she had already turned on her friend Dawn, who was her high school friend, um, who had actually come back and wanted to support her after her arrest. And she was back in touch with her, and, you know, Dawn was this person, and she would testify, you know, to her home life and all of these things. But before long, you know, Dawn was a terrible person, and she hated her. And we don't know exactly what happened, but we do know that she made, you know, very disparaging remarks about Dawn. She'd also turned on her sister Lori, as we talked earlier. She also turned on her lawyers off and on. She'd need them, and things would be oh, I trust my lawyers, everything's great, and sometimes, oh, you know, they suck and I hate them. So this, this happened frequently. Also during her time behind bars, she started threatening lawsuits against her jailers uh, for mental cruelty. She also threatened people, including guards, while in prison, uh, while in jail. And one of her favorite things to yell at people was, do you know who I am? I'm Eileen Wernos of television. So we need to talk a little bit about Arlene Prawl, who was somebody that you may have heard of that Eileen became became, uh, friends with during her time in jail and during her trial. So Arlene Prawl began writing to um, Eileen Wuornos at the end of January, so just after she was arrested. She had seen her in the news and heard the stories. 
She said she didn't believe that this woman was a serial killer, and she saw in her eyes that she needed somebody to help her. Arlene Prawl was at this time 44 years old. She was married and owned a horse ranch. In order to keep in touch, so she started writing letters back and forth, and the first letter she told Eileen that she wanted to save her soul. She was a born-again Christian, and she told Eileen that Jesus had told her to write to her. Soon after they started writing letters, Arlene started calling her. She started visiting her every week. And Arlene said that Eileen needed to be part of a family. That was what she really wanted. So what ended up happening was contact visits, which is basically being, you know, actually in the room and not behind glass, sitting with an inmate, were only available to uh, family members. So Arlene could not have contact visits with Eileen. In order to get past this restriction, Arlene decided, and I guess it was agreed to by her husband, that they would adopt Eileen as their daughter. Uh, Like I said, Arlene was 44 and Eileen was 35 at this point. So it wasn't necessarily that she thought, let's give her a legal family. It was in order for her to be able to go visit her without restrictions. They would later say that the adoption was the attorney's idea for this to happen. But it's a little, it's a little odd. Okay. But eventually, as is her pattern, Eileen would turn on Arlene as well. People were starting to ask for interviews of anybody connected to, you know, Eileen Wernos. And Arlene would say that she took money for interviews from Montel Williams and Nick Broomfield, a documentary filmmaker, at Eileen's insistence. Then Eileen turned on her for taking the money. So that was the first kind of falling out. There was an or a disagreement over money. One of Eileen's triggers was feeling like she was being taken advantage of, feeling like she was being used, feeling like she was being ripped off. All of those things were her um, common complaints. So this started creating a rift. But Eileen did actually keep writing and trying to contact Arlene. Now, Arlene in interviews would say that she had had a special phone line installed in her home for Eileen to call in, collect Um, from the prison, which is the only way you can make calls when you're in prison. And she reported that she had over $2,500 in phone bills. Now, why she had to give the amount that she was out for phone bills from somebody who was her legal daughter, I don't know. It, it, It feels a little petty to me that, you know, for her to bring that up. But it also could have been a way for her to justify taking money for talking about Eileen, which is the thing that Eileen didn't like. Arlene did admit to later on that in 1993 that she, quote, went to Tennessee to help a sick friend. She was gone for much of that year. Um, Eileen was understandably upset because she did not see her during this time at all. This would have been just at the end of her trial and sentencing. We'll get to that. That'd be the worst time, though, for her to not be there for Eileen. She also said when she was, quote, busy selling her horse farm, she didn't visit Lee for about a year. Lee wrote, but she didn't write back. She said she feels guilty for this. I promised I would be there for her, and I was not, she told a reporter. In 2000, she moved to the Bahamas, and after that, didn't visit Eileen on death row. She said she knew that Eileen was mad at her, 
So she saw no reason in going because she didn't want to pay for a plane ticket just to be yelled at. Obviously, Eileen has these abandonment issues. It's her trigger. And she continues to be abandoned by everybody who's supposed to care for her. Tyra turns on her, gives her up. That was probably the biggest blow, but it continues. She was charged with first-degree murder, which is a capital felony, armed robbery with a firearm, and possession of a firearm by a convicted felon. And I think they dropped that charge, and they just kept the other two. In 1991, her attorneys tried to make a deal for a life sentence in exchange for five guilty pleas. They were, they were willing to do that. But Pasco County wanted to hold out. They were the ones that would be trying her for the murder of Charles Karskadden, to, and they wanted to try her on the capital offense. In essence, they wanted to give her the death penalty. That was their goal. So in January 92, the trial begins with Eileen's attorneys trying to make a case for self-defense. That's all they could really do at this point because she had confessed. Her attorney, Trisha Jenkins, was a very experienced defense attorney. She had defended Danny Rawling, the Gainesville Ripper, on, I think, burglary and some other charge. She had also tried 50 other murder cases. John Tanner had been a defense attorney for 17 years. He was now working as a prosecutor. He was a born-again Christian. While he was a private defense attorney, he had written to Ted Bundy, who was at that time awaiting execution. Bundy asked him to come and pray with him on the eve of his execution date, which Tanner did. The execution was then postponed, and Tanner continued to visit him as part of a prison ministry program. He was trying to save his soul before he was put to death. Pretty interesting, right? At that time, Bundy claimed to be a born-again Christian. Tyra Moore was a witness for the state, as you would probably have guessed. During the trial, she said that she saw no signs of injury on Lee when Lee arrived at the motel in Mallory's car. She also said that Lee never told her she'd been attacked in any way. The prosecution won a ruling that allowed them to bring in information about the other murders. Usually this wouldn't be allowed in court cases. You're solely focused on this one crime and other evidence of other crimes or um, reports of other crimes cannot be brought in. But under Florida's Williams rule, they were allowed to bring in evidence from other crimes she was charged with to show a, quote, pattern of illegal activity, unquote. This would include the bloody palm print found on Peter Seams' car after the crash. Also, his luggage, radio, jacket, and toiletry bag were found in the storage locker and identified by his son. But the most damning uh, portion of the trial would be her videotaped confession, played in part for the jury. So they didn't have much in the two that they could defend her on, so she ended up taking the stand in her own defense. This was at her insistence. Her attorneys really didn't want her to do it. As we know, it's not a good plan for most people that are accused with these kind of crimes. She, on the stand, talked about her early life, getting pregnant at 14, and was forced to give the baby up for adoption by her grandparents. She talked about leaving home and finding herself doing sex work to survive, told about meeting Tyra and how much they loved each other. But she said Tyra always wanted her to bring in more money. She said that Tyra never worked after they got together, which we know is not true. Tyra pretty much always had a job. There was some weeks here and there where... Eileen would tell her to stop working, I'll work, or whatever. But she usually would end up finding another job pretty quickly. Uh, Eileen also admitted to targeting older men um, to solicit for sex. She said she felt safer with them, 
and that she had gotten a gun for protection six months before meeting Mallory. We think she probably had guns way before that, but that was what she said. Maybe it was just that gun. She, this, and again, this is a trial is about the murder of uh, Richard Mallory. So this is what the testimony is focused on. In her version of events, Mallory initiated the sex. She said she was just getting a ride home. It was at the end of, you know, her trip out of town to earn money. And she was just wanted to get home to Tyra. She told the story of him becoming violent and putting a cord around her neck, tying her wrist to a steering wheel and brutalizing her. He raped her anally and then washed himself off with water bottle that was in a cooler in his trunk. She then said he tortured her by squirting alcohol up her rectum. She said he told her he was going to rape her again and also told her that he had killed before and would kill her if she fought him. He finally untied her, but he put a cord around her neck that, she said, that he held like a noose. She had placed her duffel bag that, that had the gun on the floor of the car. And at this point, she was able to grab it and pull the gun out. She began shooting. None of this story was stated in the video confession, the prosecutor pointed out. She said that's because she was just focused on making sure they knew Tyra wasn't involved. She wasn't thinking much about herself. And then she said she did try to give the details to investigators, but they kept interrupting her whenever she would start telling that part of the story. She also said that she was trying to protect Ty, but now said that Tyra knew a lot more than she was letting on. When they asked her to elaborate on that, she would pull back saying that Tyra knew it was self-defense. That's all she would say. At one part in her testimony talking about Tyra, she said, quote, I never knew she had a black heart, unquote. Prosecutors pointed out that in the, and during a cross-examination, that in the 11 calls with Tyra, she never mentioned self-defense or being raped. Again, she said she was just focused on Ty, not herself. But they asked her if Ty knew it was self-defense, wouldn't that make her more justified in not reporting it? He also pointed out the fact that Ty knew about the murders was one of the first things Lee had told investigators during her confession. Other inconsistencies with her account was that the first bullet had hit Mallory in the right side. And then the other bullets had come straight on. The shooter was not positioned below him as she had described. And she did not help herself when she responded that she thought the body was so decomposed it couldn't be determined how the bullets entered the body. They said it was very kind of a, a cold and, and callous way that she said it. They didn't like that. The jury didn't like that. The gun, they also pointed out, was not an automatic. She would have had to take time to pull the trigger and cock it to shoot off each round. Asked about the robbery charges after the murder, she said, when I took his property, I figured he owed me for what he did to me. Her defense tried to interject before she said this, but like I said, she just likes to talk and they couldn't stop her. It was a very incriminating statement. The jury was instructed and told that there was no time limit for their deliberations at the end of the trial, but they took only 91 minutes to find her guilty. For the first time during the trial, she cried. She started sobbing. Then, just as quickly, she grew furious, shouting at them, Sons of bitches, I was raped. I hope you get raped, scumbags of America which wasn't a smart thing to do, seeing as the jury had to come back the next day to decide her, her sentence on either life in prison 
or the death penalty. Sentencing took place on January 28, 1992. Life with the possibility of parole after 25 years was on the table or death in the electric chair. The defense called psychologist to the stand, Dr. Elizabeth McMahon. She evaluated Eileen five times after her arrest um, for a total of 22 hours plus six hours of psychological testing. She had also reviewed Eileen's school records, police reports, prior psych evaluations, etc. Her diagnosis was that Diane was suffering from borderline personality disorder. Now, this is the part I want to tell you where I feel a little bit vindicated of my own theory when I read her report. I'll read part of that for you here. Just so you can kind of understand if you don't know what borderline personality disorder is and what some of the symptoms are and how they fit Eileen's behavior so closely. So one thing to know about borderline personality disorder is the doctor described it as someone who has intense and unstable personal relationships, who's very labeled in their emotions, like a roller coaster, one minute happy, one minute sad, one minute angry, etc. A borderline is impulsive and has a regular problem with intense anger and cannot moderate it well. They may behave self-destructively, Um, either very overtly in the form of suicide attempts or more subtly. Borderlines commonly have identity disturbances, and by that one may mean a gender identity disturbance or disturbance in terms of long-range goals, values, what they want from life. Someone who experiences high feelings of emptiness, alienation, who has a great fear of aloneness and abandonment. They have impaired cognition in terms of the way they view the world and the way their thought process operates. They have very intense, overwhelming feelings that they have a great deal of trouble modulating, and their life tends to revolve around two primary feelings, victimization and alienation. So that's, that's it in a nutshell. So she also talked about another theory concerning very early abandonment. Along with this, family dynamics make the borderline susceptible to what's called splitting. So that's why I'm talking is the black and white thinking, where on the one hand, this is person that's like your life and everything, but then one thing that happens and you feel like you've been betrayed or you feel like you've been slighted and then they become your worst enemy. I, they went through and they looked at all of the the symptoms on the DSM. At the time it was DSM-3. Now it's, I believe, the DSM-5, which is the psychological handbook. And she basically fit every single one of those symptoms for borderline personality disorder. So that was very telling. The prosecution provided testimony to, this is again, this during her sentencing phase. The prosecution provided testimony to suggest that she was not psychotic or delusional and knew right from wrong, which is all they really needed to do to prove their point that she wasn't in insanity defense or anything like that. Here's a part that's so, wow, this was kind of blew my mind. Her brother, Barry, testified for the prosecution. He came in to describe their childhood saying that it was not perfect, but said his parents were not abusive. He said they were hardworking, upstanding citizens who did not beat their children, but provided rules, guidelines, and discipline. He said his sister Eileen was always in trouble. He pegged her as a problem child. 
Um, he'd been grown and out of the house before she was 10. So he was not there for her teen years, but he did hear the stories about things, her behavior from his parents, apparently. Again, remember, he's testifying for the prosecution. Eileen's attorney pointed to Barry's testimony, saying that her brother came to court to speak against Lee, quote, in a proceeding in which the state is trying to kill her. What does that tell you about dysfunction, unquote? Eileen would later give an interview to Montel Williams and say that her early initiation to sex was due to Barry's stash of dirty books that she and Keith had stumbled upon when they were just children. She's, of course, obviously trying to get revenge at Barry. That just blew my mind. If anything, stay out of it. But trying to help put her away in that way, it was just, it's just hard to fathom. I mean, obviously her... Crimes were evil and, and horrible, but this is your family. After less than two hours, the jury returned with the sentence of death. It was a unanimous vote. In Florida, there, only a majority was needed, not a unanimous vote for uh, the death penalty to be, to be given. So only seven of the jurors would have had to vote for, the, for death. They all, all 12 of them did. Even so, when they were announcing the sentence, the jury forewoman was crying. And some of the jurors looked stricken as well, witnesses said. But before the judge passed down the sentence formally, Eileen was allowed to speak. She said, I have been labeled a serial killer and I'm no serial killer. And then she started ranting about a conspiracy, about self-defense, etc. We're coming on the, the final stretch here of this very long episode. Charged with five other murders, Eileen would plead no contest the following March, skipping the need for a trial and moving straight to the penalty phase. Reports would say that this saved the taxpayers in the county 20 to $30 million. The judge and everyone else tried to talk her out of that, but she was insistent. She also didn't want to be required to be in court during the penalty hearing. She still spoke about self-defense and conspiracies. She also agreed to travel with investigators to try and remember where she might have left Peter Seams' body in South Carolina. She did go, but she couldn't remember, and his body has still never been found. She was ultimately sentenced to death for four more murders after four hours of deliberation by a count of 10 votes to two. She pled guilty and received and her fifth and sixth death sentences for the murders of Charles Karskadden and Walter Gino Antonio. In 1999, she began petitioning the court to drop all appeals and carry out her execution. On February 10, 2001, a Miami TV station aired an interview. Eileen now said that she'd lied when she'd claimed self-defense. She also gave an interview to Nick Broomfield, the documentary filmmaker. She still said that the serial killer label was wrong because she was not a, quote, thrill killer, unquote. She said it was just about robbery. The reason she was coming clean, she said, is because she wanted to go to the execution chamber with a clear conscience and no more lies on her record. She said she killed all of her victims in cold blood. She said that Eileen Wuornos had to die because she was a killer and she would, quote, do it again, unquote. She said that Ty knew all about what she was doing, but she also said 
that she still loved and missed her and felt guilt and remorse for the life she took and the loss the families experienced. But if you look at this interview, you don't see much emotion from her at all. Now, this could be because she was on some kind of medication that regulated her moods and she had a flat affect. It could be because she has really no feeling about this. It's hard to know. Even though she continued at times to speak about being remorseful, she would alternately rail against society, the justice system, and talk about being used and railroaded by the cops. On October 9, 2002, 10 years after she was first sentenced to die, she was led to the execution chamber. By now, Florida had stopped using the electric chair. She would die by lethal injection. 32 witnesses were on hand to watch her die. She refused a final meal, opting to just have coffee instead. Asked if she had any final words, she said, quote, Yes, I would just like to say I'm sailing with the rock, and I'll be back, like Independence Day, with Jesus. June 6th, like the movie. Big mothership and all. I'll be back. I'll be back. Unquote. She was pronounced dead at 9.47 a.m. She was 46 years old. I think that Eileen's time in prison had her starting to unravel uh, mentally. You can see it. You saw it right after her first arrest when she was in jail awaiting her first trial. You see it later on when she's on death row. At times, she seems much more lucid. The longer she stays in jail or prison over her life, she seems to lose touch with reality, to become more and more paranoid, to become more and more angry. Um, to come up with these strange stories. Of course, being in jail or prison is a very stressful place to be, and it does a number on your mind. And I'm sure that already with the mental issues she had going on, with the personality issues she had going on, it just made it worse. That's why that strange statement at the end is so disjointed and so strange. You know, we can talk about Eileen Wuornos. Some people talk about her terrible early life. Some people talk about her horrible crimes. And yet both of those things are part of her life and part of her story. And I think you can feel some sympathy for her, for what she went through early in her life. She was abandoned over and over and over, rejected over and over and over. She obviously had mental issues early in her life possibly from abuse, possibly from just genetics, who knows. But she was not born with a full hand. She started out under a a detriment, I think, and didn't get help along the way. But we can also be horrified by her decision to take the lives of these men. I do think that it was a conscious decision on her part. My theory, again, is that the first killing happened without much planning or thought. But afterwards, she racked it up to a plus because she made out financially from it. She was able to, you know, show up with money. I don't think she was making a lot at that point, even though before she may have made more money doing sex work. But at that point, she was working for 10 and $20. So she wasn't making a lot of money. 
And this was a financial gain, plus all of the material things. She was pawning things. She didn't have any money. There was a financial element to it. There was, you know, the robbery, like she talked about at the end, that that was her motivation. But she may not have even understood this part about herself, but it's pretty clear to me anyway, and I think to a lot of biographers who have looked at her story, that it was also something that for the first time in her life, she felt like she had power. She felt like she had control. She felt like she had taken revenge against all the people who had hurt her in the past, even though it may probably had was not these men. They were an unfortunate and tragic substitute for the people who had really done her wrong in her life, but it gave her a sense of power. It gave her a sense of getting back at the world to take the lives of these men so brutally. And it's just a sad story all the way around. I kind of wish that she would have got multiple life sentences so we know she would have never been out. That would have been a given. I wonder if she had been in prison and actually gotten really intense therapy, group work, medication, um, all of these things for, which doesn't necessarily happen when you're in prison. I mean, that's, that's ideal, but doesn't necessarily happen. But, you know, maybe, maybe she could have had some kind of a you know, life in prison where she gave back to society in some way, where she maybe would be stabilized enough to understand and feel real remorse for her crimes and really seek to make amends in some small way for the harm that she had done. But instead, she was put to death pretty quickly, and she decided that was what she deserved. And she embraced it, and she said, bring it on. It was a release for her, I think, because looking back at her life, there wasn't much positive happening There wasn't much good in her life. She didn't contribute much good. She didn't get much good. There was not much in the win column. And so I think that she was just ready to check out. So it's it's very, very sad and tragic for especially the victims' families. It's it's just horrible to think that these men were not looking for any trouble. One or two of them or all of them or none of them could have been customers of hers it still doesn't mean that anybody deserved to be hurt. So at the end here, I'll just tell you a little quickly about what was left behind as far as Eileen's family. Her mother, Diane, in an interview after she was convicted of murder, called herself the natural and not legal mother of Eileen. She wanted to make that pretty clear. She didn't know until she was told by reporters that Eileen's father had killed himself in prison. Again, somebody who sticks their head in the sand. I mean, I think that would have been something that she would have found out, but she basically just was off into a different life. But she did say that leaving her babies with her parents was probably the biggest mistake of her life. She admitted that her father and mother were verbally abusive and that she was physically disciplined by them, whipped by them. Lori... Eileen's sister said she still loved her sister and she did try to keep in touch with her. But she also told Eileen just to tell the truth and get it over with. She knew that Eileen was violent, she said, and she just wanted her to admit that she had killed these men. 
Lori said that she still cared and loved her sister and was heartbroken that she that this was her life. But she also told reporters that she was embarrassed about the stories about Eileen coming out in the news and how others would now view her for her sister's actions. Again, still, you know, still kind of distancing herself from her sister, even though she, I think, I think she did love her. It just feels like another betrayal, I think. Eileen's father, just looking at him for the last time, again, if we want to look at the genetic angle, the similarities between Leo Pittman and Eileen Wernos were many. They were both in prison for extremely violent crimes against society. They both faced death penalty charges. They both had explosive tempers and were angry and violent when drinking. They both had drinking, a drinking problem. They both lied very easily and changed stories repeatedly. They were both jealous and possessive with their partners and wanted to control them. They were both highly manipulative and not remorseful towards their victims. Leo was also a problem in prison. He made many petty complaints and cried of unfair treatment, just like Eileen did. Lastly, the family line continues somewhere. Leo Pittman had at least one more child, and most likely others, reports say. Eileen, we know, also has a son somewhere. He would be 49 years old. That will finally do it for this episode of Once Upon a Crime. I hope you enjoyed it. It was a labor of love to actually do all the details of this story, and I hope you learned something new. I know I did. I'll be back next week with a brand new series for February, and I hope you'll join me then. Don't forget to register for CrimeCon and come out to visit me on Podcast Row in May. The first guest panelists and podcasts are being announced now. Go to CrimeCon.com for the details and to register. Make sure to use my discount code once for 10% off your standard badge, and I'll see you there. Once Upon a Crime is written, produced, and edited by me, Esther Ludlow. My production and administrative assistant is Lorena Garcia. Original music is by Aaron Michael Goldberg. Until next time, be good to one another. Thank you.